Uh, Phil, that was uh, David Loy, a professor, Zen Buddhist, uh, amazing fellow. I mean, incredible academic credentials, uh, page after page of publications, uh, you know, papers that he's written, uh, and a really uh, wonderful down-to-earth guy that, like so many of the people that we've interviewed that are deeply spiritually committed, uh, also have a very, very strong uh, desire and commitment to improving uh, the social situation, the environmental situation, the living situation of all people. I, I'm very inspired by David. Yes, um, a quite um, a, an accomplished guy with a very well-rounded take on the tradition he was drawn to and um, has had a lovely effect on a lot of people, including uh, the academic community. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the uh, next time we have him on, and I'm sure we'll have him on again, uh, I would like to follow up on that last question I asked about, can, can, uh, uh, can a Buddhist be uh, an agnostic? Because with, with this experience of emptiness, and I know little about Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, obviously something he has a great depth of knowledge, uh, but where does God fit in? I mean, is it necessary to believe ah, in a Well, no, a you know, I was, uh, you know, you, you said agnostic, but, you know, there's a lot of people who think of Buddhism as uh, atheistic. I see. You know, that there's, there's just no, there's not a whole lot of talk about, uh, they never use the G word, um, and um, um, in Buddhist philosophy, there's actually very little, far less than in Hinduism, about um, uh, anything approaching a creator god. And, and people um, cite Buddha himself in that regard, and they, there's different takes on it. Some people say, oh, Buddha was an atheist. And other people say, no, what he was really saying was, don't waste time thinking about that stuff. Interesting. We're here, we're here to end suffering. My, my teachings are a way to uh, end suffering through, you know, the Eightfold Path. And um, just put your attention on that. We don't need to contemplate theology and get into arguments. Okay, and, and so the, the various uh, Hindu deities, uh, they don't play into, they, they're not part of Buddhism, or Buddhists don't involve well, themselves in that at all. Or, I wish, I'm sure there's crossover, you know, where there's people that are a little bit of both. Right, right. But now, that and that's where you get also into cultural uh, differences. Mm -hmm. So most people take on Buddhism in the West was uh, originally uh, because the Japanese Zen teachers were the ones who uh, came and got the most attention, especially in the, in the uh, Beatnik era when, you know, when the Beats became, you know, Zen dudes. And, um, but then, and that's very austere and, and very um, uh, practical. Um, and then the uh, the people who brought Americans who brought Buddhism, you know, in the sixties and seventies from other parts of Asia were very practice oriented, and but then uh, you know we people became much more familiar with uh, Tibetan Buddhism, where you know there is an equivalent uh, to you know otherworldly beings and um, gods and goddesses. 
So there, it's there, and it's more in Asia than it is, or mm-hmm. parts of Asia mm-hmm. than it is in the the styles that most got most attention in the West. Right. Yeah. You no, know, uh, Phil, I, I enjoyed uh, like your question very much about uh, mindfulness because uh, it seems like what mindfulness meditation. It's like you take a, a technique out of con- out of the context of its tradition, and you just teach the technique without. Uh, any of the tradition at all. And I mean, both of us have backgrounds in TM, and it was similar that, uh, okay, right. this, this is a, t, a, a technique for rest and relaxation. Well, actually, it comes out of a, a long uh, ancient tradition. Now, uh, you can benefit from the technique, and I think he made the point, without, have, without it being contextualized, without anything to do with its tradition. But ultimately, I think anyone practicing mindfulness, taking it very seriously after a while, anyone practicing TM, taking it seriously after a while, they're going to want to know uh, more about its tradition and what context it, it, it comes out of. Uh, so I thought that was a very, very yeah. important, something I like uh, that you brought up, and I think it's something I'd like to follow up with him on, because, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah and he, he brought, you know, you can use meditation, uh, you know, all right, I'm, there's always the story, you know, uh, this guy is a, is a crook and he wants to be a better crook, so he's going to meditate. So we can be more alert and all, but eventually the, the the meditation should have some effect on his values or her values and morality mm-hmm. and all that. It's interesting, but I, I think it's something it is. We, we'll be dealing with now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We are, and and as you know, when this comes up in the context of mindfulness, which is now so popular, I always have to point out, and it also comes up in the yoga world. You mm-hmm. know, people do hatha yoga because you know they want to. Uh, stretch their muscles and look better and all that. And we've had those conversations mm-hmm. with yoga teachers. Same with uh, meditation, uh, TM and other forms of meditation. I mean, when TM became popular, you know, and mainstreamed in the 60s, 70s, um, people imitated it and came out with, you know, secularized forms of meditation. And uh, people benefited from those things, but they weren't getting the whole package. Mm-hmm. So my, my feeling is that if somebody does these practices the right way, no matter how they came into it or what motivated them, but if they do um, uh, a bona fide practice properly, in time, they'll start having experiences that lead them to think, right. wait, there's more to this right. than I, I, I would think so. Was. Yeah, you know, when we interviewed uh, Prudence Farrow, Bruns, uh, about her book, uh, she mentioned that before she was involved with Maharishi and TM, she was involved with Swami Satchidananda. Uh, and Swami Satchidananda was very concerned, she said, about uh, meditation being overly popularized and people... Uh, just getting uh, some technique and practicing it without going through the steps and stages he felt were necessary and appropriate yeah. to really get the whole yeah. package. Yeah, so there's always that kind of thing. You know, I'm doing my biography of Yogananda now, and he went through that in the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this you know could because he wanted to make his Kriya Yoga more easily uh, accessible mm-hmm. to people. And so he, he found ways to streamline the, the traditional way of uh, one you know, teacher-to-student uh, instruction. And so he taught groups, then he, he put it in you know, a mail order. Certain methods were uh, transmitted in writing, which had not been done before in that, in, in that tradition. 
And he took a lot of flack for that. But at the same time, you know, he reached you know, hundreds of thousands of people who would not otherwise right. have uh, been able to find their way to a, a, a teacher like him. Right. So the answer is both are right. And, and in, in the world of non-duality, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I think uh, I, th we now need a word from our sponsor. Yeah, think about that until next time. Well, uh, another great <laughs> interview, terrific uh, uh, fellow David Lloyd. Love to have him back on. Many more questions yeah. for him. And uh, again, uh, all, all this information about what he's doing, his website and all will be up on our uh, blog along with the podcast. At spiritmatterstalk.com. Well, by the time anybody hears this, it's already been up there. Exactly. So there you go. <laughs> and uh, okay. yeah, we're, we're, uh, yes, we'll go from here. And, All right. Uh, Till next time, Phil. Okay. Take care. <laughs>